Hello and welcome to One Great 150, our exploration of 150 and then some years of Winnipeg history. Uh, I'm Alex. I'm Sabrina. And we're here with friend and producer Nick. How's it going? Yeah. And I'm excited for this one. Oh, good. We're like, we're past the halfway point now, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. How are you feeling? Good. Yeah? Good. I mean, I feel like the... The like looming threat of more episodes isn't like weighing over you. It's okay. I think because we're past the halfway point, I'm like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. <laughs> Also, we've been doing this for, like, a while now. Also, the next episode, spoiler, is, like, really in my, like, niche area of interest, which I feel so like... So it doesn't feel like work? It doesn't feel like work. It's just me reading about communism for hours on end. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, this one's not about communism. No, I don't this think. one... No, it's not. Um, no. Um, we're leaving Winnipeg's, like, crazy boom period as well. Oh, good. So we're going into the fun, sad bit where everything kind of slides yeah. downhill. <laughs> yeah. It's really yeah so today we're talking about the 1920s um and yeah it is a bit sad because this whole episode is basically me being like so in the 1920s things here were eh, they were going they were fine <laughs> so that's what we're going to be talking about and we're talking about the photographer lewis benjamin better known as lb foot and if you know any of his pictures in like if you know any winnipeg history you've probably seen at least one photo yeah so like okay i will say that i thought that people knew who lb foot was and i've been proven wrong on this well no i think they know the picture they don't know the name i think you're right if you have seen the picture of the winnipeg general strike of people pushing the streetcar over yeah that's an lb foot photo yes so he did oh. i would say yeah see yeah like, one, you know one photo by him for sure Finally. yeah he did like most of the famous photos of the strike i would say he did a lot of photos of like sad kids in north end slums yeah so if you've seen any pictures of like poor conditions which come up when you talk yeah. about the strike a lot yeah that's probably also lb foot <laughs> yeah um but his photos are kind of all over yeah there's one there's one i've seen that's just a big chicken <laughs> yeah okay i wasn't gonna include this photo but we'll have to put it up it's a big chicken and a small chicken and that's just one of his photos just yeah <laughs> so <laughs> really all over the map one of the biggest historical events the city's ever seen one of the biggest chickens i've ever seen really broad base of work this yeah. man which is cool um now i will say that it is hard to do an episode about a photographer through an audio medium so um, we're going to do our best and we're going to put up um, some photographs like on Facebook and Instagram and yeah. um, on our website as well. I'll try to make them kind of like albums that you can like scroll through and follow along if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> like you're reading kind of like, do you have those when you were a kid, you have those like books on tape, like the little tape cassette where it would like make a little sound when you turn the page. Yes, turn the page yeah. when you hear the chimes. Yeah, yep. exactly. It'll be like that. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just listen and imagine the photographs. <laughs> Theater of the mind. Yeah. This was a great choice. <laughs> um, okay. So I think the way I want to structure this episode as well is um, less as like strict biography and more as like a series of vignettes of like Winnipeg history as seen through the photographs of L.B. Foote. Cool. Um, but I will start out with a little bit of biography because. Yeah, who is this guy? Who is this guy already? So, Lewis Benjamin Foote, he was from Foote's Cove, originally in Newfoundland. I presume it was named after his family. <laughs> it's a crazy coincidence, if not. It's spelled with an E at the end, as was his name, so. Is he named for the cove? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, he's from this kind of working class family. Um, some sources call his dad a sea captain, but I'm pretty sure he would be more accurately called a fisherman who owned a boat. Okay. Yeah, and his mom was a school teacher. Um, and he actually runs away at the age of 15. 
Oh. Yeah, so he stows away on his uncle's cod fishing boat. <laughs> Where is the cod fishing boat going? Good question. It's going to uh, Prince Edward Island. Okay. Um, and so I think basically he's trying to, like, escape a future as a fisherman. <laughs> By going on a cod fishing boat. <laughs> yeah, it's not, I mean, not a great start there, Elby. <laughs> um, and I feel like every account of, that I read of the story was, like, slightly crazier than the last. Um, but here's, um, here's one account of it from, like, that he kind of retold later in his life. It said, He still remembers peeking out of the cabin door and seeing his uncle lashed to the wheel while the mountain-high waves pounded the decks. So, the boat is apparently blown off course by a storm for about two weeks. <laughs> so he's not able to tell anyone where he is. Which, I have yeah. to imagine, would have been pretty worrying for his family. Yeah. That, like, their 15-year-old has, has vanished. And also, like... Did the uncle the know uncle. he was on the boat? Or did the uncle like, find out he was on the boat? Well, here's the thing. That story makes it sound like he didn't. But I don't think he could have stowed away for, like, two full weeks. I mean, you could have, I guess, gotten to the storm and then gotten to the point where you're yeah. alone. Of course, you had to be like, hello. Hi, I'm here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, but I think that does give a pretty good introduction of, like, the kind of guy that L.B. Foote was, which is to say that he was very adventurous, a real, like, risk taker, not someone who maybe listened all that well to, like, rules. Yeah. Um, so he arrives in Summerside in PEI, which I was actually just in, like, a couple of right, weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, it's a very nice place. Um, and he knows one guy in town. He knows the town doctor for whatever reason. So this guy, like, gets him a job in a printing press, um... But he doesn't stay there very long. He just, like, doesn't like it, isn't good at it. Um, he tries his hand at lobster fishing for a while. So he ran away from home to <laughs> fish. <laughs> yeah, though he doesn't do that for very long either. No. He works on a farm for a bit. He then moves to Nova Scotia. And in Nova Scotia, he has, like, a whole ton of jobs. He works in a bakery for a florist in a biscuit factory. He drives a delivery wagon for a grocery store for a bit. Um, he even shovels coal during a coal miner's strike. <laughs> So, so he scabs? Yeah, he does. He scabs for a little bit. I mean, he's like, I mean, he's like 17. Give him a break. <laughs> he's trying to find himself. Yeah. By working the craziest series of odd jobs I've ever heard. Yeah. And it sounds to me like he was the kind of person who maybe just like wasn't great at having a boss or like a set schedule or being right, yeah. told what to do. Right. I think that was kind of his thing. So like, I mean, keeping in mind that he was a teenager at this point, yeah. like how many teenagers are good at being told what to do? Almost none. Yeah. But um, he eventually gets this job where he kind of feels for the first time like, okay, this is something that kind of suits me. It's not photography. It is selling Christmas cards door to door. <laughs> okay. So, but what he finds out is that he's good at sales. Okay. Right? So he's like, he's got a little more freedom, a little more independence. And he's like, he's actually good at talking to people. Like, people like LB Foot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, he's just not great maybe at, like, following rules. <laughs> Um, and so his first foray into the world of photography is also actually as a salesman. So he's working with a photographer, um, basically selling coupons for, like, half-price photos. Oh, okay. And, okay, you know in some cities, like tourist cities especially, they'll try to do a thing where they, like, if they see a guy with his girlfriend, they'll try and, like, sell him a flower because they know that he doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his girlfriend and say yeah. no. It's that. It's that scam, but with photo Ooh. photo coupons. So he's targeting like like military men and their girlfriends, basically. I had a guy try that scam on me. Yeah, in the city where he just he ripped a branch off of a tree that had kind of a flower on the end of it, but it was a tree branch. <laughs> like in front of you, or no? He, he already had it. He already had it, but it clearly came from a tree. 
Was that in Winnipeg? Yeah. Yeah. I th- was it the same guy who tried to sell me a rock? I don't think so. Okay, different guy. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, right. Just yeah. like that guy. <laughs> he's selling. Just, just selling stuff. Yeah. I mean, kind of. Yeah. yeah. He's just trying to trying his hand at different things. Um, Does he do well at the photography scam? Yeah. He's actually making like a ton of money doing Is that. Is he? Yeah. And I like, I shouldn't call it a scam because they can go and get their half price photos. He's yeah. just like targeting the right people. Right. Yeah. Um, he then t- starts taking his own photos and what he does is he'll like photograph a church and then develop it and go and sell it to the minister of the church. Oh. Which is like a very specific way to get your career going, but it apparently works for him. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm trying to think of if I, like, if someone came up and was like, I took a photo of your beautiful house. Mm-hmm. Do you want to buy it from me? Sometimes realtors do that thing where they take a photo of your house and then they give it to you in the form of a calendar. And that always freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I have one of those up on my fridge because I think it's funny. But no, I'm like, why are you photographing my house? So I kind of feel like I'd have a similar response. But I guess it was more of a novelty then to have someone yeah. photograph. And I guess if it's like your church too, if it's like yeah. your ministry is a big deal to you. Yes. That's an interesting sales tactic though. Yes. Yeah. Um. So Esselt Jones, who we talked to for our Margaret Scott right, episode, yeah, yeah. she has a book about LB Foot. It's really good. It's kind of like... Like, in format, it's, like, a coffee table book, because mm-hmm. it's, like, a bunch of, like, pictures and stuff, but it's very, like, very academic, mm-hmm. very, and, like, readable as well. It's really good. Anyway, she says in there, Foote would often speak of his early life as a sort of masculine great adventure, and his short memoir is written in the tone of a boyhood escapade. Yet the reader can sense Foote's growing despair and desperation during these months that grow into years, as he moves from job to job, never quite finding the right place, and often on the edge of destitution. So, oh boy. yeah. So he's having kind of a rough time, right? Um, and eventually he becomes homesick enough that he actually sends for his parents. So Do his parents know where he is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, once he gets to Summerside, I think he writes to them and he's okay. like, hey, I'm here. Mom and Surprise. Dad, I'm surprised I ran away from Don't home. Don't be mad. On, like, Uncle John's cod fishing <laughs> boat or whatever. I don't know that his name was John. That was a Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he actually, he's, like, saved up money for them to open a shop, and he sends for them to come join him in Halifax. Okay. Um, so he hangs out in Halifax for a while until he marries um, Mary McKicken. She's a nurse. She's also the daughter of a reverend. Um, and shortly after they get married, they go to visit her father, who's preaching in Yellowknife. That's a big trip. That is a big trip. Yeah, and, like, what Foote finds is that he really likes the West. And I feel like in some ways he's kind of like the perfect frontier man, right? Because he'll just kind of do anything. Yeah, he's kind of like this wild guy, right? He'll yeah. just kind of, yeah, exactly. He'll do whatever. He's kind of like a self-starter, you know? Big risk taker. So they end up moving to Winnipeg soon after that in 1902. They buy a house on Gertrude Avenue. Um, the house isn't there anymore, but here's a photograph of it. Oh, it's a cute little like two-story home. Nice big veranda on the front. Family yeah. in the windows. Some, like, flower plants in front of the windows on the porch. Yeah, it's a very sweet house. And he lives he lives there for, like, ages. Um, and, by the way, so that house would be, like, if you know where the Vita Health is on Osborne? Like, kind yeah. of that building? Like, it would be, like, across from there, there's, like, a waiting pool and a playground. Right, yeah. It would be where that where that ah, is now. Okay. So, unfortunately, now it's a waiting pool. But... You can go swim where LB Foot once lived. There you go. <laughs> Everyone's dream. 
that is yeah that is the dream <laughs> and not really swim you can sort of walk Wait. walk in knee-deep water for a little bit <laughs> while a teenager sort of stares at you but like really angrily yeah <laughs> Um, my older sister worked as a lifeguard in one of those waiting pools. Yeah? Did she like it? No. <laughs> those feel so bad when I see them. It's a really boring job. Um, but this is where uh, Foote begins his work properly as a photographer. Um, he actually starts doing the church thing again here in Winnipeg. Classic. Yeah. It works for him, I, I guess. I mean, if he lives near Osborne Village, it's a good spot for it. There's That's lots true. of there churches There's a lot of churches there. around there. Um, he also partners up um, in 1909 with George James. Um, so they set up a studio in the Cataman Building, uh, which is on um, on Portage. Okay. Do you know the one? Not off the top of my okay. head. Okay. You would know it if you saw it. I'm I feel sure like if you search up the Cataman Building. So this is where he works for the duration of our episode. And I found this cute ad. Um, oh. Do you want to? <laughs> okay. It's for Foot and James Photographers. Do you want to read the little slogan, though, that they've included? Yes. I am more than pleased with the work done by this firm. It is most satisfactory. Jay Winthrop. <laughs> I just, I really love that as like the glowing praise that they needed to sell their studio. It is most satisfactory. It, yes. More than pleased. Anyway, so that's where he works from. Um, he's also a photographer to the coroner for a long time. Yeah, this was a thing that came up when we were, I was like helping you with research is that there's a lot of... A lot of coroner photographs. There are. So we we chose not to look at those, actually. <laughs> I mean, we didn't like we didn't need them. And I don't know. It feels a little weird. To we me didn't just, want to. No. Frankly, it, we just didn't want to look at dead bodies. No, we didn't. That is how he most often appears in like the papers. But, right. Yeah. But like not in ways that are super interesting. Right. It's just kind of like foot came to court and identified some photographs that he took. Um, so we're not going to talk about that too much, but a lot of Foote's most famous work is from, like, Winnipeg's boom period, so we talked about, like, that toppled streetcar photo, right, the North End photos, but we've definitely done enough talking about that period. Yes, so let's go into the 20s. Yeah, so let's talk about the 20s, and what's cool about Foote, so the U of M had, like, an LB Foot blog a few years ago. Right, yeah. And one of the blog posts, I forget who wrote it, but they had called him promiscuous, which I think <laughs> is a really funny way of putting it, but what they mean is, like, Foot went where the money was. He took, yeah. he was a commercial photographer, right? So he's not someone where he took photos of, like, he did take photos of things that interested him for well, sure. Like his family house. Yeah, of course. But mostly what he took photographs of was things that people paid him to photograph. Right, yeah. Which is cool because it gives us a really broad view of what was happening. That's why he took those, like, poverty photos as he was paid to by the All People's Mission. Yes, yeah. Um, I was wondering, actually, I was thinking it must have been the mission that paid him to do that. Yeah, they're in, like, a book the All People's Mission published. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that gives us this really cool, um, sort of selection of things to choose from. And that also... That people are willing to, like, pay for. Yes. What are they trying to show off in the city in the Yeah, 1920s? exactly. Like, what do people want to showcase? And also, like, who has money for photographs, which is yeah. kind of interesting, right? Um, okay, so let's do, like, a little overview of the 1920s. Um... We we didn't, to my understanding, we didn't really have, like, a jazz age, so to speak. No. The way bigger cities were, like, the roaring 20s with the flappers and the big cars. No, this is the thing. I feel like a lot of our ideas of, like, what the 20s were are based on American kind of depictions. Are they all based on The Great Gatsby? They might be. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't really have that, right? Like, the thing that happens in the U.S. is that after the First World War... The U.S. does, like, super crazy well because they're, like, giving lo loans to other countries in Europe. And, right. like, none of the fighting happened there. So they're doing super well. But that's, like, unique to them. Europe's having a hard time. And Canada also having a hard time. Um, 
So, like other things too, also like we didn't have prohibition here throughout most of the 20s. We got rid of it in Manitoba in like 1922, 23. Yeah. Also, our prohibition was so different than the state's prohibition, right? So it, it was. We we wanted it. We were like, hey, stop us from drinking, please. <laughs> we're begging you, take the booze away. <laughs> Yeah, so we didn't really have, like, a roaring 20s. Um, There were no, like, speakeasies. Well, you didn't need to. You could just go to the bar. (laughs) Or just drink at your house. Or drink at your house, because that was mostly allowed even during Prohibition. Um, We also enter a recession almost immediately post-war, which is, like, a huge bummer (laughs) to have a world war (laughs) and then immediately be like, no one has jobs. Well, it's really just kind of like bang, bang, bang for the city where it's like, there's the war. Yeah. There's the strike. Yep. The recession. Yep. And then, like, five years where things are, like, kind of okay, and then, boom, depression. Which will be our next episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, so our boom period is definitely over. Um, and, like, yeah, like, you were saying, like, the strike, Winnipeggers are kind of mad at each other also. Yeah, I mean, that'd be a hard thing to get over, right? Like- yeah, for sure. There are a lot of resentments. Um, throughout most of this decade, the city council is kind of split between, like, labor alderman and like citizens committee alderman right yeah and if people don't know an alderman is just what we call city councillors um and yeah so especially like at the beginning of the decade there are still strike leaders in prison yeah those trials don't happen until 1921 yeah so definitely and those feelings last beyond that i would even say like in the 30s even we're still seeing like those kind of grudges well like the armstrongs have to leave town at some point just because they can't find work because they're the strike family yeah so definitely we'll like talk a little bit more about some of the repercussions of that but um so like yeah those feuds are still there so we're still like a city divided in a lot of ways absolutely Um, But that all being said, so none of that is good stuff, but we do see, um, like, while we don't see the kind of, like, expansion and huge population growth that we had until, like, you know, 1915-ish, we do see Winnipeg sort of, like, settling down into itself, I feel like, right? Like, we're transitioning from this kind of anything-goes frontier town to a place where we have, like, universities and hospitals and a legislative building that's not someone's house. Hey! And we'll burn to the ground! Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, and an aqueduct. Yes. So um, I had originally planned to talk about the aqueduct in this episode. And what I realized is it's just too big of a subject to kind of shoehorn it in between different things. In no, the 20s, we'll do so. the aqueduct at a different point. That deserves a full episode. And we want to talk to like community members as well yeah. when we do that, I think. so. But Winnipeg now has clean drinking water. Yes, we have. At the cost of a different community, but we do have clean drinking water. <laughs> yeah. So we're becoming kind of like a proper city. Unless of like a weird crazy frontier town yeah (laughs) with like typhoid riddled streets yeah where we're like i don't know the train goes through there and a bunch (laughs) of people live there all of a sudden maybe (laughs) um we're also kind of like trying on different hats as we realize that we're like not going to be a transportation oh yeah this is the era of like tourism trying to kick off in the city yes yeah we're like i don't know what are we gonna be um, and we do embrace, like, some of the kind of social changes yeah. as well of the 1920s. We'll talk about that. But um, let's start with the recession for a little bit. Yeah, the, the most fun of topics. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that leads to recession in a lot of cities in Canada is the fact that, like, wartime industry via government contracts dries up. Right, yeah. Um, so that is a factor here, but, like, definitely less so than on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, transporting finished goods from here to, like to the coast is harder so that is a little bit of a factor but the bigger factor here is the even more exciting topic of wheat prices yeah (laughs) i've been waiting for this have you um so because i keep telling you to do a prices right sale game with the wheat board and you refuse to do it (laughs) the 
the problem is there like on Price is Right there are multiple different things to <laughs> to guess the price of. I want you to show us different pictures of wheat. Nick it's and I just, have to guess how much that wheat is worth based on no it's knowledge. Just wheat. I okay. You can get. Do you want to guess the price of wheat in 1920 per bushel? Per bushel. Is it above a dollar? It's above a dollar. Five sixty. Ooh, that is really wrong. <laughs> it's two eighty-five. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that fun? (laughs) Wasn't it? I'm so glad we did this. Um, So what happens here basically is that during the war, wheat prices were like regulated by the government. Um, And so in 1920, grain buying moves back to the grain exchange where it had taken place before Mm -hmm. the war. Um, So I've got another photo here. Here's our inside of the grain exchange. Ooh, yeah. Okay. We've got the inside of the grain exchange. It is a weirdly lit sort of <laughs> big room very classical columns just a just a bunch of dudes in bowler hats talking about the price of wheat you can see the old chalkboard oh yeah <laughs> up on the wall there you can see it says statistics oh yeah they're talking about grain prices they have one of these still in red river college on the princess campus oh that's really neat i one didn't know the, that yeah so the board was like in the first grain exchange building on princess street and when they were like renovating they found it so yeah. you can actually go see the grain exchange board with the prices still oh, on that's it that's very cool um yeah so Obviously, like, it's bustling. There are, like, a ton of people there. Like, basically, this is the stock exchange, except specifically for, like, oats and barley. But that's, like, the stock exchange for the whole prairies. Like, that matters so much. It does. Not just us, but, like, how much of Western Canada and all of Canada. It really does. So that activity had stopped during the war, and now it resumes. Um, And, like, the other thing that happens is that, like, Europe can't afford wheat anymore, basically. So that market's kind of gone. So that market's gone. And other countries, so there are, like, for instance, South American countries that had been exporting wheat and had to stop during the war, and they're back. So we've got fewer customers and more supply. I'm no economist, but... That sounds bad. It does sound bad, and it is bad. Um, Do you want to guess the price of uh, wheat in 1921? (laughs) I'm assuming it's lower. It is lower. Is it five sixty? <laughs> That's higher. What, Sabrina? <laughs> no, no, like five dollars and sixty cents. Before it was two eighty five a bushel. No, I know. I, my last guess was oh. five dollars and sixty. <laughs> I'm um, guessing the same thing as a joke. Got it. <laughs> Took me a second. Great. I don't know, like hundred and twenty five. Um. So the price is now eighty cents a bushel. Whoa, yeah. that's a big drop. It's a big drop. So, and this is really crappy for a lot of farmers because, like, just like everyone else, they had been asked to, like, do their part during the war. Yeah. So, a lot of them, like, took out loans to expand their production. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, to buy equipment or yeah. to, like, buy more land, right? And now a lot of those people default on those loans because the government isn't buying wheat from them anymore. Um, which also has the domino effect of taking down a bunch of smaller banks. Oh, right, yeah. So this is like, I don't know, just like the most prairies way to get into a recession. <laughs> we can't afford All that our... we need next is a drought or a flood. Um, There totally were droughts as well. Oh, but, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> just like, we can't afford our tractors and the economy's gone. <laughs> it's tanked. Yeah. So if you know where Red River Culinary School is, in this like older photo that i was going to show you you can see it says union bank on it yeah but the more recent ghost sign on it said royal bank because the royal bank of canada bought it out yes they did because it went under yeah or like almost went under and basically its investors were like you need to sell you need to sell and so um jim blanchard who wrote um 
I, I'd say like I was gonna say a book on Winnipeg in the 1920s. He's but the book. It's it's the only one. Let's be real. He wrote the book on Winnipeg <laughs> in the 1920s. So he cites the ease with which shareholders gave up Winnipeg's only bank headquarters as evidence of how the city's old ambitions were beginning to slip away. People were no longer in a confident, expansive mood. So. Yeah, I guess that goal of being like the Paris of the West is kind of gone. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then of course there's the Panama Canal. So, you know, <laughs> Sabrina, yeah. why does that affect us? Uh, it drastically impacts shipping routes. Yep. So, like, you now have access to eastern Canada mm-hmm. in the whole east without taking the train across the country. Because you can take a boat. Yeah, exactly. Canal. So a That lot... rail economy that we use is then kind yeah. of gone. <laughs> like, a lot of the business that we used to do transfers to Vancouver instead, which becomes this, like, bustling port city. And actually, like, Winnipeg and Vancouver kind of have a bit of beef going on during this period. Yeah. They're, like, arguing about, like, freight rates, which are even <laughs> more boring than wheat prices, so I'm not going to talk about them. Okay, fair. <laughs> but they are arguing about that. They're kind of sniping at each other. Um, but um, despite the recession, they're is like a pretty significant industrial development during this period Mm -hmm. um and part of the reason for that is like as a reaction to that development right that we're like okay we can't be a transportation hub we need to find a new thing we need to find a new thing let's be a manufacturing hub so we get things like factory towns so manitoba pulp and paper company creates a town called pine falls and here's my cool photo from this one Ooh. It is just more logs than you have ever seen. That's so many. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a huge... I mean, it's a huge mill with a ton of lumber. When was this built? Um, In the early 1920s. I forget the exact year. Because that's in... I'm pretty sure it's in Sag King First Nation. Is it? Interesting. Give me a second. I'm going to look something up. It's now called... It's now been amalgamated into Powerview Pine Falls? Yes. Okay. So I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if it's, like, the same pulp company yeah. as the one you're talking about, but I'm... Pretty sure that around the same time in Sag King, essentially what happens is someone with the pulp company basically kidnaps the chief of Sag King First Nation. That's insane. And holds him oh hostage until they agree to cede the land to the company. Oh my god. So that's how we get that uh, factory town. Yeah, I mean, that's a good reminder, too, that like all of this industrial development, or like virtually all, is coming at the expense of like indigenous land, of indigenous indi- rights. Of indigenous land and also of like the environment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, certainly any kind of factory town is also, like, economically pre- precarious. Like, that that paper mill isn't there anymore. Yep. So this is not all positive, right? Um, but Foot does take some really neat photos of, um, like, industrial projects. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, one of the neat things about Winnipeg is I think, like, other larger cities are often sort of, like, islands in themselves. Yeah. And I think Winnipeg is always sort of connected to these, like, surrounding communities, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, Foote sort of touts himself as this, like, daredevil photographer, and I think this is partly why, I mean, people pay him to do these industrial projects, but I feel like he always does them in ways that are, like, unnecessarily ridiculous and dangerous. Like he's too close to the industrial construction sites that might (laughs) kill him? (laughs) Exactly. And I feel like that's kind of the perfect fit for Winnipeg at this time, though. Actually, where was he standing for that pulp photo? (laughs) That's a, I don't know. (laughs) Was he just standing on piles of wood? Um, I would guess probably. (laughs) Um, okay, do you know, this is pre-1920s, but I have to talk about it. Okay, do you know that fo- Fort Gary photo? Yes, I have it framed in my house. Oh, do you? It's a really good photo. It's one of my favorites. So it's Oh, no, like... it's a different one. There's one oh. where he's sitting on a beam. Okay, that's it. Okay, yes. This photo is the photo he took 
from that position. So there's a photo of LV Foot like straddling a beam that's elevated in the air by a crane. Okay, no, that's a different one. I'll talk about it in a second. <laughs> this man this loves man. to be high in the air. <laughs> So, okay, no, I know the picture. There's a picture of a bunch of the construction workers at the Fort Gary Hotel. So you can see, like, the spire, that, like, green sort of yeah. part of the roof. And it's a bunch of the construction workers just kind of hanging out and leaning on it, very high in the air. And I did always wonder how he took this photograph. And um, it was by being ludicrously high in the air in a dangerous way. What he did was he had a bunch of construction workers stand on the other end of the beam, of a <gasps> beam, to weigh it down, like a plank, while he crawled out to the end of it. That's somehow crazier than I thought it was. <laughs> the other one, this like, one. What if they? What if they killed Winnipeg's like only photographer? Oh my god, point? I don't know. I mean, there must have been people who died and were seriously injured in these construction projects. Multiple like, the people these... died in the construction of the Fort Gary Hotel. I mean, looking at this photograph, like some of these people have ropes. A lot of them do not. No, yeah, it's like I don't know, ten men. Yeah. Some of whom are holding onto ropes, but it seems like there's a guy right at the very top of the spire who is loosely holding a rope, but is mostly just sitting on the very top of the Fort Gary Hotel. Yeah. And notably, like, this is before, like, protective equipment, so there's no helmets. No. These men are wearing, like, flat caps. Like, and, like, this guy here who looks like maybe the foreman, he's not attached to anything. He's no, just... but he's also on the roof sturdily. I don't know that I would say sturdily. But, yeah. Yeah. No, it does not look safe. Well, also, their spotter is just kind of a guy holding the rope for the rest of them. So, like, if everyone kind of goes falling off of the roof at once, one guy is holding everyone else tied to that rope up. Yeah, and so what they felt they should add to that equation was a man crawling out on a plank to photograph it. So, again, that's actually pre-1920s, but that's the kind of thing he's doing. No, Um, I think... Is this this the one that you have a photograph of? Yes. Okay, so there's a picture of LB Foot. I had this framed in my head. Yes. Um, Do you want to read what it says? LB Foot photographer in Winnipeg taking a bird's eye view from the city, hosted on a derrick from the top of the MacArthur building on Portage Avenue, an elevation of 278 feet. So he's basically <laughs> straddling just a bunch of, like, what looks like two by fours. Yeah. Being hoisted into the air, holding and, a camera above and, the MacArthur building. And again, not held in place in any way. No, this man is actually not seemingly secured at all. No. Um, and apparently while he was doing this, like, the chain is kind of hooked, right? Yeah. And it, like, slipped a couple <gasps> of loops as he was sitting there. And he was left sort of, like, swinging and just sort of, oh. like, held on. Oh, no. oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> 278 feet in the air. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So somehow this man survived. <laughs> yeah, he lived a long time. He did. Um... But yeah, he that is how we get a lot of those cool photos. Is a man who is willing to risk life and limb. Just absolutely insane. Is he like the Tom Cruise of photography? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever said that before, but I think you might be right. He does all his own stunts. That's right. Um, this is also a time of like cool innovation, right? Like there are fo- foot photos of like... The first dustless street sweeper and like new agri- new agricultural. And equipment. if you know Winnipeg streets, they're dusty. Actually, you know what? We should maybe bring that back. <laughs> <laughs> the dustless streets. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like with all that development, we are actually creating jobs for like skilled laborers. Yeah. But in the meantime, general laborers are kind of being like left out to dry, right? So, like, in earlier years, it was pretty common for laborers to work, like, casual jobs during the warmer months. And then in the winter, they would just live off the savings. Right. Okay. And so, because there are fewer of those jobs, they're still making an okay living during the warmer months. But in the winter, they don't have any savings. 
So what do they do in the winter? Well, nothing. They starve, <laughs> basically. So this becomes a huge unemployment problem. And it's too much for, like, previously we talked about, like, the All People's Mission and, like, the Margaret Scott Nursing Mission, right? These are sort of, like philanthropic or like charitable organizations and those aren't enough to like bridge that gap anymore. and like the unions that were once providing this community support are kind of like stuck now they can't do as much after the strike so yeah that support's good, just kind of gone that's a really good point too and also like if you're a casual laborer you may not be a part of a union right, yeah. right? if you're not a skilled laborer and you, like god forbid you suggest unionizing oh my god yeah in, after like, 1923 yeah. winnipeg oh <laughs> So 1917, during the war, is when Winnipeg first establishes a, like, social welfare commission. Mm -hmm. um, and their mandate specifically is to provide assistance to so-called bona fide residents. And why they include that is because, like, okay, so we talked earlier about all these farmers who default on their loans and lose their farms. Where are they going to go? The to the city. To the city. Winnipeg is basically not interested in supporting people who come here who are not residents here. There's, like... We'll talk about this in the next episode, but mm -hmm. there's, like, parades of people going from, like, city to city in the 1930s yeah. to get work. So you can see kind of the precursor to that. Yeah, this, absolutely. Right? Yeah, people just trying to go wherever they can. And it's, I mean, it's interesting that there's already, like, rules in place to prevent that from happening in Winnipeg. Totally, yeah. Um, and so, like, at first, there's this whole kind of process that you're supposed to do. So, first of all, you're supposed to go to, like, the employment service office, and they, like, certify that, no, there are no jobs for you, and then you go back to the um to like the aid place right um you have to prove that you have no income um and once that is all proven men would be put to work splitting firework it was just like a wood yard yeah. or whatever um and women were expected to take domestic jobs and this becomes like a point of contention a lot of women feel that that's like humiliating and like there's maybe some kind of elitism there but like certainly i wouldn't yeah. want to be forced into housework yeah into housework into doing chores <laughs> i'd be really bad at that <laughs> They would not like me. I don't think you'd last very long. No. Um, but that is also sometimes legitimately dangerous, right? Because, like, these are positions. They're not able to vet their employers, right? They're just put yeah. in wherever. So, like, women are often at the kind of mercy of, like, the sexual advances of their male employers. Right, yeah. So that becomes an issue. And so this process just breaks down. Mm -hmm. um, and by 1921, there's a relief building downtown that's just handing out checks. Oh, wow. How yeah. much are the checks for? Oh, I actually don't know. That's a good question. I'll have to see. I don't know if I could find out. But yeah, like b before it was kind of like, okay, we're going to put you to work or like we're going to provide you with like a like help in kind, yeah. right? Like kind of vouchers. Who's funding the organization? Is this, it this is a really good question because there is a lot of debate over who should be at this point. This is the city that set that up. Okay. Um, but I guess, yeah, the city can't afford to do that forever. No. And like also... They're, even so, they're not really doing enough, right? This yeah. is not enough. for it, Like, whatever amount of money it was, it's not really enough to support people. Um, so the unemployed start, like, holding meetings, organizing to voice their yeah. distress. So it's interesting because we're kind of like, oh, you know, like, we had activism in 1919. And then we're kind of like, no, no, that was the end of that. But no, there are actually a ton of, like, you know, protests and stuff yeah. that happen afterwards. So. Here's an image of... Oh, I've seen this picture. Yeah, this is an unemployed veterans march in, I think, 1922, maybe 1921. Yeah, they look like... I don't know where the picture is, but it looks like it's downtown somewhere. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of trucks. Looks like they're doing some kind of parade. Um, the banner on the side of it says, The disabled soldiers in Winnipeg are out of work. Yeah. 
Um, and there's a ton of people, right? Like this yeah. looks like if I didn't know better, I would think that that was a 1919 photo. Yeah, this looks like a strike photo of people like surrounding a car. And yeah, it's lots of people. There is actually a little kid in here. Oh, interesting. There's just a little kid in the middle oh, of the crowd. Is. You're right. Yeah, so, like, I mean, also, obviously, all these soldiers are coming back from the war. Yes. Some unable to work now, too, yeah, right? Yeah, is... absolutely. That's what that sign is yeah. about, right? So, yeah, some people are unable to work. And also, soldiers, um, broadly speaking, were wanting change. They were like, hey, the way we were doing stuff before actually led to this terrible war where my friends died. Yeah. Let's maybe do things differently. So there is a lot of just general unrest as well. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely, like, concrete demands that, like, okay, some level of government needs to do something about this. But which level of government should do it is the... Yes. And, like, all three levels of government are kind of foisting it off on each other. The federal government is like, okay, maybe we'll do something. No, actually, we're not going to, depending on who's in power. It's the city that should do it, or it's the province. And the province is like, no, it's the city. 100%. Yeah. Um, so there's that a bunch of... song and dance. Yeah, a bunch of discussion. Like, in 1925, there's discussion of the creation of a poorhouse in the city for, quote, indigent, indigent old men. So, a, oh wow, a poorhouse is like not something we really have here. No, it's a very Charles Dickens it concept, is, right? The idea is that you go somewhere and essentially you work there all day and sort of live there yeah. as well. There are stories that from oh, I wish I could remember where it was. This was like a university paper of like an orphanage in the city where parents would just kind of drop their kids off temporarily in the 1920s and 30s because wow. they couldn't afford to care for their kid. Yeah, and they would just come and pick the kid up later. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's, well, there's also the discussion of sort of the opposite of that, which is whether um, they should pass laws to say that children of, like, older folks who can't um, care for themselves, who can't afford to care for themselves, should be legally held responsible for their care. Oh. Right? So, yeah. like, if you've got, like, an elderly person who can't afford to, to stay somewhere, should their children legally have to pay for their them to stay somewhere interesting it's really yeah and so that sort of doesn't really go anywhere but it is interesting that we're like who can we give the responsibility for this that's not us yes exactly <laughs> um oh another thing that the city tries to do is send unemployed laborers away classic yep so the mayor of vancouver actually accuses winnipeg of providing um unemployed men with train tickets and sandwiches and sending them to <laughs> vancouver which i think we probably did do i don't know if we did the sandwiches part uh, yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> um winnipeg's mayor responds by going over the roles of people who had received relief in winnipeg and like finding the names of vancouverites on it <laughs> um so there's, yeah, yeah. sort of some sniping Some feuding going on. Yeah, but, um, spoiler, we don't actually get unemployment insurance until 1940. It takes a while. Yeah, so things are just bad. Um, but a more kind of exciting and optimistic part of industrialization was, um, Winnipeg's electrification. Ooh, yeah, so this is, like, the first time when people are starting to get electricity in their homes. I think we did, like, was it a bonus episode It was a bonus episode on the Patreon about the first electric, fully electric house yes. in the city. Um, and it was very, like, Jetson's House of the Future conveyor belt going from the dining room to the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> so most people don't have fully electric houses, but people are maybe starting to get electric lights. Yeah. Um, and this this sort of reminded me a little bit of the, like, fire in the Margaret Scott episode because it, like, takes a natural disaster for us to do something. <laughs> Yeah, okay. In classic Winnipeg fashion. What's the what's the disaster that prompts electricity? It's a tornado this time. Oh. Yeah. So, um, at I, did, time... I shouldn't have sounded so excited about that. <laughs> You're like, ooh, a tornado. Ooh, this is different. It's not a fire? Yeah. 
Um, so at the time, by the way, we have like competing power companies. Manitoba Hydro doesn't exist yet. What we have is like Winnipeg City Hydro. And then we have the Winnipeg Electric Company, which is privately owned. And that runs the streetcars. Yes. Yes. And we'll talk about that in just a second as well. So that tornado touches down um, and it downs a bunch of transmission towers. And so most of Winnipeg is, is out um, without power for about a day. Okay. So it just like it takes them a little while to put up put back up all the transmission towers and everything and like that's not that crazy but it's not great right no and this is also i should say like there weren't like refrigerators yet so yes. like their stuff's not gonna spoil it's in the ice box no but like i feel it's not, it doesn't bode well right if that can happen yeah um and the mayor who is elected in 1923 seymour farmer one of his big things is like developing public utilities and so he has this idea of building like a standby plant Okay. So the idea is that if those um, other plants go out, if there's an outage, that there will be a plant here in the city that can provide emergency power, at least okay. to the things that really need it, right? Um, and this is like a rare occurrence of someone just having a really good idea and then we do it and it works out really well. Wow. <laughs> so. Unprecedented. Okay. So, and the guy who has that really good idea, I unfortunately didn't write down his name, cause, which is kind of too bad. But <laughs> um, so he's the general manager of City Hydro. And what he suggests is because that plant isn't going to be used for the most part, what they can do with it in the meantime is um, use it to heat downtown. Oh, okay. So. At the time, most downtown buildings, or, like, most buildings in, in general, right, larger buildings are heated with, like, you know, burning coal, essentially. And that's a fire hazard. Yes. That's, that's why mean. a lot of our buildings burn down in the winter. A hundred percent. It's a fire hazard. Also, like, downtown is, like, well, first of all, there's just, like, smoke everywhere. Right, yeah. And, like, everything's just covered in, like, a thin layer of ash. Right, you know? yeah. It's just, like, <laughs> at one point we had posted a video um online of like it was just like an old like archival video of winnipeg and a lot of people commented like it used to be so clean and i'm like it's not the video is in black and white it's tricking you this would look real nasty in yes color. it would smell so bad <laughs> <laughs> um so what they end up doing um is they figure that like first of all this will reduce that Mm -hmm. And it will also help to retroactively pay for the plant because they can charge for heating bills. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they dig up a bunch of downtown streets to put in pipes. It opens in 1924. And it's just How do you like, think people felt about them digging up Winnipeg streets? Oh, I'm sure people were. You know what? Ginger Snooks, I feel like, probably had feelings about it. <laughs> he was like almost dead by this point. That's true. But I bet he still had feelings. <laughs> when did he die? 1926. Okay. So that was his last angry letter to his send Last hurrah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the city makes money and downtown businesses also end up saving money. It turns out it's cheaper to heat through steam than through burning stuff. What? Yeah. Um, and so this is really good. Um, this is also, I think, where some of Winnipeg's tunnel mists probably come from, right? I would assume so, yeah. Do you want to do like a super quick recap of that? <laughs> of of the tunnel mist that have yeah. plagued my entire career? Yeah. <laughs> so there is an idea that Winnipeg has like a labyrinth of underground tunnels. Mm-hmm. And what almost all of them are, are steam tunnels to put the pipes for buildings so we can heat yeah. them. Yeah. So there are some going, the legislative building ones, I think, already existed. Yeah. Yeah. But the ones downtown are to transport steam. Yeah. And the common misconceptions that they were used for, like, rum smuggling and prohibition. Yeah. But as we talked about, 
didn't really happen here. Prohibition was over by the time the tunnels were in place. No, you could just take your rum above ground. <laughs> there was no need to do that. So like, yeah, like, okay, maybe there's tunnels, but yeah. they're tiny and they're not exciting. So this, I think, is actually a sewer tunnel, but I found this and I really like it. Oh, yeah, this is... I hate that I know this. It's the St. Boniface sewer. There you go. <laughs> because there's a different picture of an opening and there's a bunch of men in suits having like a party in the sewer to celebrate its opening. Yeah. So this is a bunch of men in a sewer. Hanging Apparently, out. Okay. That's really funny that they did that because they also, I, he, there are no photographs of this that I could find, unfortunately. For this plant, they also held a little like party in the in the tunnels. <laughs> that might be the same one. And I bet I can find that picture for okay, you. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, it's just guys in a tunnel hanging out. There's yep. one man that's, like, leaning with his hand kind of behind his head. I think he's trying a little too hard to look casual. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, we were... It was Winnipeg's tunnel era, in yes. a way. <laughs> but not in, like, a cool, exciting way. And not in the way where we're going to build, um, like, a subway system for some reason. We're like, let's build tunnels for everything else and not do that. Um. Anyway, but... So, Mayor Farmer, he's kind of an interesting guy because he's, like, vehemently anti-booster. Oh. So I guess, like, I would describe a booster as someone who had advocated for kind of, like, rapid, unlimited growth, right? Yeah. Or, like, uncontrolled growth. And he is basically saying that, like, the attitudes of those people had enriched land speculators, but not your average Winnipegger. He's right, but that's a crazy stance for a mayor right? to take. Oh, my God. So I feel like he's actually, like, in some ways, like, a really useful person for us to have had an office at this point because, like, there's no way he could have said that 10 years prior. He would have been, like, forced out of office 100%. by A.J. Andrews. <laughs> but just personally picked up and carried out by A.J. Andrews. Um, but I think it's a good thing that he's, like, looking for, like, first of all, he advocates, like, slow and steady growth. And he's looking for different ways for Winnipeg to yeah. rebuild its economies. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to go back to the boomtown days, which I think is kind of important. Yeah. Um. One of his big issues, though, we had mentioned that Winnipeg Electric owned the streetcars, and this becomes one of his big um, issues during his first term and one of his big campaign issues. Um, so the Winnipeg Electric Company had signed an agreement with the city in 1893 to run the city streetcar mm -hmm. system. So this has been a while. Oh, and I've got a cool photo here of a streetcar. This is There are a ton of cool photos of streetcars, but this is my favorite one because it's, like, in use in this photo. Yeah, I mean, like... It looks kind of like a city bus functioning yeah. that like there's still kind of the curved like roof and everything except instead of the uh, seats sitting horizontal they're like against the wall yeah of the they're car. facing each so other you can like you can look up and make eye contact with anyone you want all the time oh no and then talk to them <laughs> at length well that already sounds like my bus experience Sabrina <laughs> but now it's so much easier to make eye contact this is <laughs> this is the future great now also um there's still like ads you can see one for uh Eclipse I don't know what that is. Oh, but there's like there's yeah, advertisements sure. along the top. Yeah, it looks very much like a city bus. Is that a sunkist? That is a sunkist. It's ad. one for juice. Yeah. So yeah, similar ads. I mean, it looks like a little nicer in that it's got kind of that like 1920s like paneling yeah, on I the mean, windows. Yeah, it just looks like cute and old fashioned. Yeah. Right? But yeah, um, it looks it looks nice. Everyone's reading the paper. Yeah. No one's on their phones. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're reading the paper. They're reading the paper instead. Um. Yeah. So it's been um. They've had this 35-year contract, and so this is going to be coming up in 1927, I believe. How long was the con Were they renewing it annually? Or no, was it was a 35-year contract that they signed. That's so long. It's really long. And, like, the like the contract that they signed was basically, like, it was, like, profit sharing, and also that Winnipeg Electric would, like, pay taxes for each car that was on the, okay. on the roads. Or, like, each street car, to be clear. Um, and so... 
that contract also had an option at the end for the city to buy them out. So this is what Farmer is advocating for. He's advocating for buying out that contract and the streetcars will become public. Oh. Um, Winnipeg Electric is angling for a 10-year renewal. Okay. Um, and Winnipeg Electric, it's really interesting. The like they they were a clever company, I think. I think they sort of had like had people in powerful places. Yeah. Um so like as an example, during the war they had had a really hard time because of um do you know what a jitney is? Yeah. Okay. Do it's you a five cent taxi. Yeah. So these are basically owner operated taxis. So just like if a person had a car, they might take their car downtown during rush hour and give people rides, right? It was basically Uber. Yeah. But five cents. Yeah. It, it was cheaper. Yeah. Like what they, like what I was reading was they were saying like, it's basically the same price as taking a streetcar, but more comfortable. And so um, Winnipeg Electric, the, at least their streetcars are having a really hard time for a while because of that. Yeah. When I was doing my Helen Armstrong episode, the front page of any like union news is also mm-hmm. like side by side with like streetcar versus jitney oh interesting so that's, yeah that's been a fight that's been going on for like over a decade at this point yeah so what the what happens is that the board of trade lobbies city council to outlaw jitneys and they do really yes they like outlaw fuck, they outlaw taxis yeah <laughs> i guess you could probably still be part of like a taxi company i don't really know uh, but so i guess it's kind of like banning like air- it's like banning uber or, interesting yeah so yeah, not allowed. So Winnipeg Electric is like, haha, we're the only option now. Um, Unless we make it public. <laughs> we make it city-owned. <laughs> Will we do that? Let's see. Um, Winnipeg Electric, though, does something really interesting during this debate, which is that they start heavily marketing their stocks to Winnipeggers. <gasps> oh, no. Yes. So this is a really interesting approach, right? Because they're like, oh, like we play, we pay dividends. You're going to make money if we don't go public. Yeah. Um, Winnipeg Electric had also just hired Foot to photograph this like huge development they had made, which is the Great uh, the Great Falls Dam. Uh, so here's a picture here of the generator station. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say it's like the inside of any like old hydroelectric dam. Yeah. It's just huge, like huge noisy generators in this like big long building. Yeah. Like it's hard to imagine the scale of it unless you've been in one. I think that's true. But if you go to, like, even if you go to Pinawa, they have parts of these left, and you mm-hmm. can kind of get a sense of, like, how huge these operations were. But, like, these yeah. are big, expensive buildings. Yeah, and this is one of those cases where, like, we have a really good idea of why Foot was hired to take these photographs. Because they're selling stocks. Because they're selling stocks. They're trying to say, like, hey, we've just done this super cool, amazing thing. And Look at how impressive our facility is. It's state-of-the-art. These yeah. are the newest hydroelectric generators in the market. And they buy, like, full-page ads to be like, we just built the Great, like, yeah, yeah. the Great Falls Dam. Um, so that's going on. Um, and they're like basically threatening to put City Hydro out of business because they're doing so well. Does City Hydro like this? Oh, City Hydro does not like this, in fact. So that's the publicly owned Hydro, right? Um, and Farmer basically campaigns on like buying out the streetcar contracts and also defending City Hydro just in general. Do you have a sense of what like public opinion was like on this? pretty divided i mean we do elect farmer right yeah. we, we elect him once and then elect him again when he's running on that so i think i think probably the majority of people did want it yeah. to go public but maybe didn't feel super strongly about it um farmer though does point out that 
Winnipeg Electric at this point owes the city over a million dollars for taxes, first of all, for like paving Mm -hmm. in areas where there are lines and also for burst water mains that they've caused. Oh, no, they keep breaking water mains? Oh, man. So there's this whole, it's, I, I don't quite understand the mechanics of it, but something about like the electricity running through the lines can sometimes like cause the water mains to break. Interesting. I don't, yeah, I don't know how that works, but apparently they kept breaking water mains, basically. Um, it seems like a problem. Yeah, it's also a problem that, like, they don't have full control over Winnipeg Electric, right? So, yeah. like, you know, they're building new neighborhoods and they're like, hey, could you please build a line out there? And Winnipeg Electric is like, no, <laughs> we don't We don't really yeah. feel like doing that, right? Um, Forgive our million dollars of debt. And yes. then we'll do that. So um, labor aldermen and like farmer as mayor do succeed in like blocking the renewal of the contract for a number of years, but um, it does ultimately go through. So it stays, it stays private. Sorry. Darn it. Yeah. Well, for another 10 years. Yeah. And then we'll see what happens. Well, there you go. I think it stayed private until it, yeah. until it went out of business, but. Um, it's interesting there was like a push to try and make it public though. Yeah. Yeah. And then I feel like the next guy, guy just kind of like didn't care about that as much <laughs> like yeah um but he runs for re-election on the pretty good slogan uh smash the machine <laughs> <laughs> man that's so good isn't it it's real intense for a like let's have public utilities yeah, this is a public transit advocate it's <laughs> <laughs> like not that machine <laughs> that's good i like that um his his opponent is Robert Jacob, whose position is that he would extend the contract unless there's a referendum saying otherwise. <laughs> right? Is this not like... <laughs> I've never heard such Winnipeg nonsense. Is that not Portage and Maine all over again? That's what it sounds like. Like, sorry, Brian Bowman, but... We'll do it. Unless people tell me not to. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe I'll change my mind. Um, There's just... There's a meeting that I really like um, that happens, so... um. Like, basically, uh, Robert Jacob is speaking, and there seem to be a lot of people both for and against him in the audience here. Um, so, whatever, he's talking about uh, about Mayor Farmer, and it goes, Mayor Farmer likes a fight, interrupted a voice. So do I, said Mr. Jacob. I don't wish to say anything against Mayor Farmer. Can't, said a voice. <laughs> Shut up, said another. <laughs> That says, Mr. Jacob went on to say that in the city council, there were two factions, one representing the independent labor party and the other, uh, all the remaining citizens. His statement was greeted with loud laughter. (laughs) (laughs) So Jacob does not win. It seems like people don't like him very much. Okay. But you know what is interesting about all of this is Mm -hmm. that like Winnipeg is doing like so-so at this point in time. There is still like, I would say considerable public interest. In, like, civic elections. Yes. And, like, there's crowds of people coming to heckle candidates. Oh, there are a ton. This is a meeting with, like, 300 people there. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, at one point, like, John Queen stands up and everyone cheers and then he asks a question people don't like and they all boo him. And, like, it's just, like... <laughs> John Queen can't win. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, But, yeah, those kinds of... The kinds of views that Farmer had definitely did not make him popular in wealthier circles. No, I can see that being a tough sell. For the people that, like, have maybe invested. Yeah, so there's the actually, there's a group formed called the Better Civic Government Association, <laughs> which is founded exclusively to oppose farmer. Um, Calling it Better Civic Government's so pointed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
they make claims that he had made socialist statements and that this had <gasps> harmed investment in the city. Oh, no. It's very funny because our next episode is going to be about actual socialists. <laughs> and this seems pretty tame. He's just like, I don't know. I think maybe public transit should be public. It's it's pretty moderate, honestly. And like, also, it seems like a thing where it's like, this is now impacting like city functions if they're breaking water lines. Yes, exactly. Right. And like owing a bunch of money to the city. Um, there are also accusations that he had connections to, like, extreme radicals and socialists. Okay, but I'm going to say <laughs> that everyone accuses everyone of that in the this, 1920s. You're right. That's like, Winnip- I mean, I'm pretty sure it's all of Canada, but, like, yeah. a big thing in Winnipeg is, this person might know a communist. I, I feel like in our next episode, the loophole the guy took was, yeah. I, and so what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, like, even if you look at, like, the strike propaganda, a lot of it is, like, totally. they have connections to the Bolsheviks. Yeah. So it's nice to know that that didn't change. No, and they do, like, weird digs where they, like, okay, at one point they accuse him of not taking off his hat at an Armistice Day event. (laughs) And he has to, like, publicly respond to this and be like, I did actually take my hat off. (laughs) Oh, no. So it's just, like, it's just nonsense, right? But anyway, he is... They're really trying anything they can. Yeah, so that doesn't work, but he is voted out in the following election in 1925. Um, But before we get on to the next topic... Um, the topic of the next mayor, there are a number of like other electrification projects. So we mentioned the Great Falls Dam already, um, which is a private one. There's also Slave Falls, which is constructed by City Hydro. But the most interesting and the largest was the Seven Sisters Fall Hydroelectric Dam. Yeah. And this is a provincial project, this one. So this is like, this is huge, right? Mm -hmm. It has the potential to produce more power than any of the previous sites that had been developed. But that does mean it's going to be a really costly project. So who do they get to promote it and justify the expenditures? (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, Wait, first of all, I'm going to show you my photo that I like for this one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this, this is a picture of uh, construction of a Seven Sisters Dam. There's a bunch of water because you have to like go underneath. Yeah. To basically construct are construct like the slice way or the sluice way yeah and there are two men in like old timey like scooby-doo villain it, it diving looks like suits. it would be so scary to dive like under a dam wearing that i have a scary fact about what might happen if you like depressurize in these oh my god what happened you shoot up into the helmet oh no <laughs> okay <laughs> it's not gonna happen when you're doing the yeah the dam and manitoba because you're not gonna go that deep right i guess if there's like more pressure if you're yeah but like also like these suits are really heavy they have one at the selkirk marine museum and you can like yeah you can see one up close and they talk about how like how much it weighs and you would have to like weigh them down with stuff to get underneath right so you have to like basically strap bricks to these guys so they sink yeah it's not it's not safe work no (laughs) so yeah it's these two guys diving underneath and then a bunch of folks sitting around like supervising the project this is like the anti-workplace safety episode. <laughs> it really is. Um, and so, yeah, so you had asked who they get to actually, like, fund this. So that's a very good question. So um, there's a lot of dispute over, like, is the province going to do it or are they going to contract Winnipeg Electric to do it? Mm-hmm. And Premier Bracken ultimately negotiates for Winnipeg Electric to do it. Um, so he decides that, um, so they're going to do the work on the condition that the power be, power be supplied to the province for like 30 years at a set price and afterwards they can like buy them out. That's not the, that's not the interesting part though. Okay. The interesting thing, you will be shocked to hear this. There was a political scandal surrounding this, this decision. No, I know this never happens. So, um, 
Colonel Taylor, he's the leader of the provincial conservatives at this point, so this is the opposition party. He accuses Bracken of having straight up received a $50,000 payoff. <laughs> That's a huge payoff. <laughs> yeah, from Winnipeg Electric in exchange for this decision. And they, there is actually a royal commission to look into this. We were doing that all the time. Uh, that's true. <laughs> also, like, 10 years ago, look what was happening at the ledge. Yeah. There was a whole construction scandal with no, that you're building. Right. Apparently, we have not learned our lesson. So, Amer- Will we ever? No. Among Taylor's evidence is the fact that Bracken's government like changed their position pretty quickly. Did Bracken get marble tiles in his house shortly after the construction? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> um, so there are also like, <coughs> um, like close ties between members of the government and Winnipeg Electric Company, mm-hmm. which I'm like not surprised by. No, obviously. Um, Winnipeg Electric stock also began to climb after the election, so it's kind of evidence that like, oh, maybe they knew they were going to get the contract. Um. Okay, this is kind of a weird one. There's an accusation that a director of the company had purchased four foreign language newspapers and used these to campaign against the conservatives. Oh, this turns out just not to be true. I don't. I don't really know because they couldn't read the foreign language newspapers. And they're like, this could be saying anything. I think. I think that's actually what's happening. And also, it's kind of just like anti-immigrant propaganda, right? Um, but, okay, central to the accusation, Taylor says, so Colonel Taylor, this opposition leader, is told that he was told about this payoff by this guy, Elliot, who's the brother-in-law of a director at Winnipeg Electric Company. Now, Elliot has apparently told this story to a bunch of people, but he's brought before the commission and he literally just says, oh, I made it up. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I don't know. He doesn't. No one is like, why did you do that? No, they're just like, oh, okay. Because, like, I guess, like, Taylor didn't actually verify his story. He was just like, oh, Elliot told this to a bunch of people. I guess it's true. So I don't I don't know. I don't know if it was true or not. What is definitely true is that a bunch of members of Bracken's cabinet had bought stock in Winnipeg Electric, which is which is insider trading, right? I yeah. think today that would be illegal. Back then, things were maybe a little looser. We did an episode about stock market laws. For the boat for the Patreon about a sheet music guy who was like That's scamming right. it. Yeah. And yeah, the rules were a little looser at this yeah. point. We're around the same time that guy was committing stock market fraud. That's right. Um and I think like I think probably it was still kind of illegal then. But also like, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah, like what what the Royal Commission concludes is that there was no intentional dishonesty. Oh, okay. That's cool then. Yeah, they're like, oh, you didn't know? You didn't know you're not supposed to do insider trading? Okay. <laughs> Someone should have told Martha Stewart about that one. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, the ulti- yeah, the commission ultimately finds that, like, nothing has been done wrong. But, okay, there's one weird thing. <laughs> Another weird thing? <laughs> this last weird thing. Okay. While the commission is going on, the private secretary of the general manager of the company goes on vacation quote, suddenly for no definite destination at the company's expense on a mission which she did not disclose even to her family. Um, the company claims she was just taking a well-deserved holiday. Alex, um, do you remember in the episode on Joe Hurst that we did, there was a bit where people are starting to realize that something weird might be going on with his stocks where he vanishes to take a well-deserved <gasps> trip yes! to Europe. Oh my god, it's it's literally that again. Yeah. Um, he also didn't tell his family where he was going. No, and the company, yes, the company's like, no, she's just taking a holiday. And her nerves, you see. Yeah. The general manager is later like, oh, well, she was getting some private papers for me. Hmm. And that's all we learn because she never comes in front of the commission. That's when she's on her holiday. <laughs> Interesting. What did the secretary know? Well, that makes me more suspicious yeah. than I was before. So I don't know. 
Every- it is weird. You're right. Yep. It's just weird. And we don't know. They're eventually they're like, no, I guess it's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Winnipeg's first couple mayors in the 1920s are really into this like industrial development thing. But in 1925, we elect Mayor Webb. Um, and this is, you had talked about like, this is the kind of tourism drive time, right? Yeah. So that's his whole deal. It's car time. It's car time. Yeah, this is a big thing. So he also, like, he puts up this big, like, electric sign in City Hall that says, Welcome to Winnipeg. There are pictures of that sign. Are there? I couldn't find them. Okay, we'll find them and put them up. <laughs> um, It's hard to find just, like, sometimes when you're just, like, searching, you're, like... You can never find what you want. No. But I have, like, a pretty good memory of, like, seeing that, I think, on the city archives. Okay, I'll look for that. Um, Aren't you glad I had this weird useless knowledge of photos yeah. <laughs> that just like plague me in my day-to-day life yes i am <laughs> um but yeah he also takes part in a couple campaigns so the first is the daylight tour which is sponsored by the tribune so the goal of this is to show that you could drive from winnipeg to minneapolis in the daylight hours of a day <laughs> um this is so funny as someone that did drive to minneapolis in seven hours like a month ago <laughs> yeah it's a little quicker now right so um, also more is... comfortable. I can't imagine those old cars were oh, like nice. Oh, right? Oh, my God. This is, quote, to emphasize the unlimited tourist possibilities of the newly opened route to the south. So they leave at 4 a.m. on a day in May uh, with Mayor Webb in the lead car. So he's really, like, gung-ho about this. He's, like, putting his money yeah. where his mouth is. And Webb says, thousands of tourists from the south were halted in the vicinity of the international border last year because they were told Manitoba roads were poor. <laughs> Thus, thousands of dollars should have gone that should have gone to Winnipeg tradesmen were lost. Such a thing cannot be allowed to happen again. <laughs> and he's just, driving to stop it. I just love how serious he sounds about this. Like, as if it's, like, this, like, incident that happened. And that, not, like, like, maybe the roads were bad. Well, yeah, so 12 hours was the goal, right? And that, <laughs> yeah, as you said, you, you did it in seven hours. Um, that doesn't sound very fast, but, like, as the Tribune points out, in the early Red River days, that took about a month. To yeah. go by, like, right, if you were taking, like, a, a boat, right? Um, and also, like, you know, even just, like, a few years earlier, going, like, say, 20 miles an hour was super crazy yeah. fast speed. So, to be honest, though, like, this, their test of this doesn't actually seem super fair to me as, like, showing that uh, anyone can do it. Because they can afford, like, a nice car. And Not- I'm assuming people want to, like, show off, right? Like- I mean, that, but also, like... They write to all the towns that they're coming up to ahead of time. Um, so some of them, like, they clear the traffic. Some of them give them, like, a police escort <laughs> or, like, lift the speed laws in their town so they can just, like, zip through. Yeah, it's easy if you can go 80 kilometers an hour well, to yeah. a residential neighborhood. <laughs> exactly. So the lead car's actual running time had only been 10.5 hours, just, um, but they did have to replace a tire and fix a gas line during the Good. trip. Um. But Webb's car does cross Minneapolis city limits at 4.01 p.m. Not bad. Yep, not bad. Just one minute behind schedule. You only had to leave Winnipeg at 4 a.m. <laughs> Worth it. Why? Like, was it really light at 4 a.m.? I might have done 6 to 6, frankly. That sounds better. Um, the other cars take a little longer. Uh-oh. There had been some mishaps. Um, so... <laughs> There was this, so this um, oh, no. younger guy named Roy Parkhill, he was a representative of the Young Men's Section of the newly organized Tourist and Convention Bureau of Winnipeg, and he was unfortunately burned by gasoline <laughs> while repairing a puncture in the car's <laughs> tire. That's so bad. <laughs> it's bad. That's not, that's not good proof. It doesn't, a fun drive. it doesn't get better because another car popped a tire and then flipped and caught fire. <laughs> no! <laughs> so, but, okay, for whatever reason, they're like, 
Complete success. 100% yes. This is, the f- this is the success rate we expected, is that two cards were going to be completely destroyed. <laughs> yep. And How th- many cards were there? Um, I don't know if I wrote it down. I think not that many on this trip. So, like, of, like, say, like... Like, like four, maybe. So, of four cars, 50% of them met yeah. with a catastrophic <laughs> error and couldn't complete the journey? Only one got there on time, too. Um, this is also kind of like a hard launch for Winnipeg's new pu- new tourist bureau. Right. Okay. So yeah, this is when you start seeing, like, tourist pamphlets this in, is like, the literally, archives and Yeah, stuff. this is literally the opening of the tourist bureau, and they apparently receive 40 letters from Americans in the two days after it opens. So Cute. this is... Yeah. Um... So on the basis of this success, the Tribune decides to sponsor a longer road trip, which is the Pine to Palm Tour. Right, I yes. think you, you know about this one, yes, right? Yes, I do, a little I've bit. seen this picture. Yeah. So I think there are a few different pictures of this, but here's the one that I've got. Yeah, it's a big old big old motor car. Yeah. Which I can't imagine would be fun to drive. It really doesn't look fun like, to sit in for very long. No shocks. And the roads at the time. Yeah, you're bumping on everything. Yeah. I don't know how much like the fuel would be on this either. You probably have to fill up a lot. Oh, yeah. And then also, like, if you crash, the car will survive. Guess oh, who won't? Yeah. <laughs> Good it's <point>. you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a big old car. There's a guy and it looks super excited. It says, uh, General Manager Jefferson Highway. Highway, Winnipeg to New Orleans, Pine to Palm Tour. And there's a bunch of people hanging around outside, and there's a Union Jack and an American flag hanging up behind it. Yeah. And it looks like it's on Main Street by some bank halls. Yeah. Oh, there's Union Bank of Canada. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Oh, in the post office. It's by the post office. Oh, there you on go. On Main Street. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so they head off, head off it's on... It's a big crowd waiting to, like, see that one car off. Is it one car It's going not off? one car. It's, it's So I guess that's probably the lead car in that photograph. Um, it's 28 cars. That is a lot of cars. It's a lot. How Carrying long is the drive supposed to be? 81 people. Well, they set off on January 23rd. They're going in winter? Oh, they're going in winter. Um, no. Yeah, and there's this whole thing about how they're going to, like, see every different type of weather as they drive. Um, I have um, driven to Florida with my family in winter, and we got stuck at a hotel on two separate nights because of severe blizzards oh, where we no. couldn't see the road. Well, okay, part of the publicity here is to advertise the new all-season highways. So I think <laughs> that's part of why they're leaving in winter. Right, they got to show it off. Yes. How do the all-season highways hold up? Okay. Hey. Um, the whole story actually is very cute. They talk about how they're like welcomed in every town, and some of them they put like banquets or just have like people stand by the side of the road and like wave Who's at them. Who's all driving these cars? Who do they all invite on the trip? Um, like a bunch of different people. It's a lot of people who are like car people. Like they have mechanics along. I guess that makes sense. Yes. Um, Lest your car uh, flip over and burst into flames. I actually I have a photograph of some of the drivers. There was a really good photo that, like, oh, I found when I was with you of, like, an auto body shop in the 1920s, too. Yeah. 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 So you can see, like, all of the, like, crazy tools they would need to fix a car. Yeah. Oh, this is actually not from the, this is from the Daylight Tour, not the Pime to Pond. Pime to Pond. Oh, my God. Pine, Pine to Pond. You got it. <laughs> Having a hard time. Um, so these are the drivers. I guess they're just guys. Yeah. Yeah, they just seem like guys. George Maitland, James yep. Jordan. Roy Parkhill and Ernest Touchings. They all look pretty excited about it. Oh, yeah. Though, can you imagine, like, a car guy getting the old, like, to do this cool showy drive? Um, that would be pretty fun. Until. Until. <laughs> so, I mean, it goes okay. Like, I'm sure yeah. there are also, like, whatever things that happen along the way. But we don't really get any stories about, like, things flipping over or whatever. Oh, good. I guess maybe they're not trying to do it as fast. 
is one thing. They're not racing to Minneapolis to get there before no. the sun sets. Um, so they, yeah. So you would ask how long it took. Uh, they left on the 23rd of January. They arrive on February 4th. It's a long time to be in an old car. Yeah. Um, oh boy. But yeah, people greet them and yeah. nicely along the way and whatever. Um, they only spend three days in New Orleans and then they drive back. I would spend longer. Yeah. If I was doing that well, drive, also, I would spend apparently, longer. Like they just missed Mardi Gras. <laughs> like <laughs> Oh wow. This is a badly planned trip. It is. We I hadn't think... quite figured out the whole tourism industry thing yet, had we? No. I mean I guess the point is not to advertise New Orleans, so they're kind of like, We don't care what's happening here. We're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen the city, we can go. Yeah. I don't know. Like, Jim Blanchard had said, like, maybe the Tribune just didn't want to pay for them to stay in New Orleans for that long. Or, dur- or during Mardi Gras, do you think maybe that's, they hiked that's, the race? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, by the way, I okay, I haven't had a chance to watch it because I just found it, but um, there's a documentary made about this in 2016 where they recreate this drive. <gasps> that's fun. So, yeah, we'll have to watch it. Yeah. Um, but a big par- part of what makes these campaigns possible is the fact that um, in the 1920s, this is the first time that, like, cars are available to the average person. Yeah, and I mean, the first time also that there's roads cars can drive on. Oh, yeah, totally. Because the I think there was well, a car we dealership. we talked about all the mud jokes yeah. before, right? Well, like, there was a car dealership in Winnipeg, I think by, like, 1906, 1907. Mm-hmm. The issue is the roads hadn't been paved properly yet in a yeah. lot of neighborhoods. So, like, if you have a car, where are you going to go? Yeah. And, I like, I wouldn't say that, like, your average person has a car at this point but like you might know someone who had a car yeah you know it's kind of you're kind of getting there right we're like your upper middle class people are getting cars um but yeah that kind of brings us to some of the social changes that we see Mm -hmm. in winnipeg so um i think one of the big changes here that we kind of alluded to in the very beginning of the episode is that we see this, like, ever-widening gap between the rich and the poor. Mm-hmm. And I mean that, like, economically and socially, but also, like, like actually geographically. <laughs> yeah. So, like, we had talked in our Margaret Scott episode about how wealthy people were, like, already moving away from downtown. If they have a car, think of how far south they could well, go. Well, this is a thing, right? Like, now that they can commute, they're like, I could never look at a poor person on the weekend. And that's the dream. <laughs> that's the Canadian dream. <laughs> So they're moving, like, further south and further west, um, some into, like, the brand new development of Tuxedo, for right, example. Yeah. Um, like, near Assiniboine Park, right? Yeah, so obviously cars play a part in this. Um, and as they're moving away, um, areas that had been the homes of, like, Winnipeg's kind of earliest wealthy um, residents, so places like Roslyn Road, are, like, subdivided into apartment buildings and become sort of working class neighborhoods. Yeah. Um. Which, you know, we, we need more space for people who are working yeah. for a living. So, um, Is it when you start to see kind of the divide between, like, it's poor people who take public transit and rich people take cars? Yeah. Or does that come a bit later, do you think? No, I think that does come already. Like, even, you know, like, during the strike, right, there were, um, like, wealthy people who were, like, driving their maids to and from their right, houses, yeah. right? So, no, I think that was already happening, probably. I think probably if you were a wealthy person, you could maybe still get away with riding a streetcar, yeah. but, like, not for much longer. Yeah. <laughs> that would be gauche. Yeah. Um, so, Foote was often hired to photograph families, and he actually said that some of these were his favorite photographs to take. So, he said, One of my happiest jobs was taking pictures of family history. A little girl, then a picture as a bride, as a mother, of her daughter as a child, and then a bride. I like to remember those shots just as much as the important ones. That's cute. It is cute. Um, 
And I feel like as a historian, like in some ways, those photographs, like we don't know those people. So they're kind of in some ways less interesting to us. But there are neat things we can glean from them as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, even like just fashion. Yeah. Like sort of go to for that. Yeah, totally. Actually, I was going to talk about about that. So, yeah, let's like. Like I had found this picture of like a graduating class. Yeah, it's um, what school is it? Oh, Daniel Mac Collegian Student. Oh, there you go. Wow, that was a fast like acronym to name uh, translation. <laughs> I'm on there, it. Sabrina. I might not be right. <laughs> Probably, but it's a yeah, it's a group of girls posing for their graduation. They're all holding these big bouquets. They all have very short like 1920s bobs. Yes. Um, it works differently for every hair type. So you can see a lot of a lot of different attempts at the waves going on yeah. here. A few where it just tragically did not work. Oh. <laughs> and I think also a few attempts at darker lipstick. Oh, that's true. Hey, so yeah. like some have no lipstick on at all, but then you see yeah. kind of like the flapper lip mm-hmm. on a few of the women. I guess maybe depending on how uh, progressive their parents were, maybe. How much they let them get away with. But they're all wearing these, like, kind of white, shapeless dresses. Yeah, you can that see. That hit varying points near the knee. Yeah, you can. We can't quite see their knees, but we're seeing calves. And they're also, like, these, like, kind of drop waist dresses, right? Yeah, so they're kind of shapeless. It's supposed to be that, like, sort of, like, skinny look that was very yes. popular. Yeah, and actually, like, so, like, clothes are being mass-produced for the first time. Which, like, the upside of that is we get to own more clothes. Um, the downside of that is there clothes is... Clothes don't fit as well. Yeah, clothes don't fit as well. You're, there's pressure to fit into standardized clothing, clothing, right? Which drives people to try to be thinner, especially to try and get this 1920s look, right? Which is very shapeless. Yeah. I, I don't think either of us would have <laughs> would have looked terribly fashionable in the 1920s. I would have been dressing in a nice long skirt, nice like unpatterned skirt and yeah. a blouse, a little cap. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I would have been on a farm. <laughs> I wouldn't have been here. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, there's also, like, in, like, this photograph, which is of, like, a wealthy family. Oh, yeah, it's a nice family posing outside of kind of a, a cute little mansion. Yes, <laughs> cute little, <laughs> little mansion. mansion. I like that way of putting it. Uh, there's a little boy in his shorts. Yeah. And his high socks. And kind yeah, of... kind of a similar, like, paper baggy dress for the little girl. Yeah, and we can see that, the like... The daughter is wearing more of, like, what I would consider, like... The Heather's look from the I, 90s, right? I almost wonder if she's in, like, maybe a school uniform. That seems to be a school uniform, right? Because it's, like, a, a pleated skirt and then, like, a boxier blazer with a tie. Yeah. Which looks more like a school uniform or what, like, kids wore in the 90s on TV shows. Yes. And then, like, what I think is neat is that you can see, like, even, like, the mom, or who I assume is the mom in this photograph, has that flat, dropped waist look. Yeah, but in a much more conservative way, right? Yes. Like, it looks kind of yeah. like an old 20 or an earlier gown, but with just... This, Less of a waistline. Yeah, this new shape. The dad is just kind of wearing a normal suit. I don't know. Men are wearing suits. They continue to wear suits. Sometimes the legs are skinnier or wider. <laughs> just wait until we get later and they become huge. <laughs> but yeah, we can see in these photos like how well families were doing, right? We see like big houses and nice clothes and lush trees. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I would say like Foot wasn't quite a part of that elite world, right? But he's sometimes kind of allowed in a little yeah. bit because of what his job is. Well, because he gets to take pictures of them, yep. and they want to show off, right? So I did find him one time in the society pages. Oh, really? For yeah, for a party that he threw an, an evening. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we also see that like Winnipeg from those photos, it's not like a frontier town anymore, right? We're a place that has schools. We're a place where people are living with multiple generations of their family. Yeah, women are here now. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, though that being said, a lot of wealthy people were still sending their children away to be educated. 
That makes sense. Yeah. I'm assuming it's mostly the rich that are doing this and then. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we had schools here. They didn't have to, but they were just like, eh. Send them into Toronto. Yes. Or Montreal. Montreal. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so, like, I think at least some of that separation of the wealthy and the working class we can attribute still to the strike. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are definitely, like, still grudges being held. And I think also, like, wealthy people didn't necessarily feel safe. <laughs> I think their um, sort of power and influence had been questioned and, you know, they no longer had the respect of a lot of people. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for one of us to, to go there. Um, yeah. I don't know how much a lot of Winnipeg's early elite deserved a whole lot of respect from the city. Yeah. Well, if you're, if people are on our Patreon, they can listen to an episode. I don't know if we put it out yet. The bonus episode. Yeah, we did. Okay. About like the Winnipeg's millionaires. It's just a list of rich guys who mostly made their money off of land speculation. Yes. It's a, it's a list of people who came here early, exploited natural resources and then stayed rich forever and then died and then speculated on various other things. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we can see like an example of one of those uh, grudges in the fate of the Board of Trade, for example. Oh, interesting. So, um, the Board of Trade, and this is interesting because like Winnipeg is building up its manufacturing power, but the Board of Trade is diminishing in influence after the strike. Oh. So, okay. Do you know the industrial building? Absolutely. I do. It was the Citizens of 1000s. Yeah. So this is a photograph of it. So if you're going down Main Street today... It's that big, it's, oh God, it's the Canadian Wheat Building. It's a big yeah. Art Deco building that's kind of on that weird, like, slanted corner near uh, 300 Main. Yeah, so where it's... Where the new Earls is. Yeah, it's an it's a government building now. It is not the building we're looking at here. No, the building we're looking at in the 1920s is, like, a lot of other buildings, classically inspired. It is actually very short, which is interesting. Yeah. It is a sort of one story building that sprawls out it looks kind of like a world fair building to me well that's kind of the intention yeah it was built to be kind of an exposition hall or like exhibition hall i don't know which of those is have you looked at what it says on the top of the building what does it say because there's text across the top of the building oh yeah normally you'd put like above the columns like in tablatures there's kind of this little thing at the very top of a building yeah where you'll see like the bank of montreal the building of port germain this one says welcome industries agriculture immigration something electricity and then it kind of fades out education and it putters out. And it seems like a list of different industries along the industrial bureau building. Yeah. So like one of the things they would do is they would have like exhibitions of like new inventions, like whatever. Yeah. Agricultural equipment or like there, at one time there's like a poultry show there. That actually might be where the big chicken and little chicken come from <laughs> now that I think of it. <laughs> uh, the art gallery also gets their start in this building. Oh. So early artist exhibitions are held in the industrial bureau. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, so this is built, but like, oh my god, it's a huge building. It like sprawls all the way down the street. That's like multiple blocks. Yeah, it's got this like, um, hall that's meant to hold like almost 5,000 people, I think. Um, it's huge. It's built in like 1911. Um, and so it's state of the art, right? The idea is that like for years to come, this is going to be where we exhibit everything. Look, the names continue past the main entrance. Yeah, I should try and find, this is like a pretty low res photo. I should see if I can find a sharper one and we can see what's actually written on all of those. This is one of those buildings where there's like a handful of pictures of, and then they're all kind of from this angle. So like, if you want to see the other end of it, you're probably never going to. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that was torn down by like the 1930s and it was replaced. Yeah, well... And, like, which is really funny because it had basically just been built. And, um, yeah, like, by the mid-1920s, it's kind of falling apart. 
like that this is you know less than 15 years later it's badly in need of repairs and like the board of trade can't afford it neither can the city and so like the board of trade just moves to like the ground floor of a rented building nearby very grand yeah right like they had this kind of grand ambition right and then they're like actually we can't really afford that anymore it's funny because it feels like when we build like convention centers today right like that's the convention center of the 1910s to an extent right people are coming for these trade shows imagine if we had built like the mts center and then 10 years later we're like actually no we have to get rid of this (laughs) what are we doing then (laughs) there's a lot of construction on it okay fair enough (laughs) (laughs) no we still have it. we'll probably have it for a while yeah but like there have been repairs yeah okay fair enough and renovations (laughs) At least we could afford to do them. No, that's true. We didn't just knock the building well. down. Okay, but to go back to, like, the social changes of the decade, um, a big one we see is that social life comes to the public sphere. Um, so there are, like, social clubs and yeah. theaters and movies. Um, so we found this. And vaudeville. Yeah. We found this neat photo, though, right, of, like, equipment for the first talkies. Right, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's uh, for Capital Radio Demonstration, which is, like, capital mm-hmm. movies. So it is an old talkie setup. There's a guy dressed like a sea captain. Yeah, I don't know why he's it. dressed like that. He's genuinely like a captain's yeah. hat. He's the captain of the theater. Um, there is a huge cord going underneath this table. And then uh-huh. on top of it is like a ludicrous amount of machinery. Some look like radio dials. And there's a big like phonograph speaker coming out of it. Yeah. And I'm so curious about how it worked. Me too. <laughs> Because I can't quite figure out where the sound is coming from. Well, it has to come from that phonograph speaker. Yeah, but like what's coming, what's feeding into that? I don't know. Because <laughs> like, is it a radio broadcast coming in? I don't know, because it said it was equipment for the first talking movies. Yeah. But like, it does say radio demonstration, so I don't know. There's many questions about this. Yeah. I mostly want to know why he's dressed like a sea captain. It's the only man in the photo when he's holding like, <laughs> he's genuinely holding like a radio broadcaster headset in his hands. Oh, yeah. What is this man doing? I I don't know. But yeah, we're getting talkies. We're getting talkies. And ma- like basically just people are going out is the point. Yeah. Right? Um, we got like... And well, like, we talked about this a bit in one of our Valentine's Day episodes when yes. we did the 1920s. People go to the movies. Yeah. They go dancing. Exactly. Yeah. Like So like dating especially, right? Like people that used to happen on like parlors. We well, talked was- about this also in our like Winnipeg Beach episode yeah. a bit. Yeah. That people like would, you know, if someone was trying to court you, they would go to your house. There is an episode of um, the show, what's it called? Books That Kill? Uh, if Books Could Kill. If Books Could Kill. Yeah. Which is a fun one that like goes through airport thrillers. But yeah. they did one on like dating recently. And they had this anecdote in it that was like a joke from an old newspaper. And the joke was that like a country guy turns up to a city girl's house to like court her and she has her hat on. Oh. <laughs> and that's the whole joke. Yeah. And the joke is that he's coming there to court her inside the house. But she yes. wants to go out to the movies because she's like a city girl. Right. That's that's interesting because you need to know quite a bit of history to get that. Hey? Yeah. Like, ha Oh no, she's got her hat on. What a gaff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now people, young people, are going to like dance halls and public parks as well. They're like necking. Uh oh. Uh oh. Um. Yeah, because people have like a little bit of privacy now. Yeah. You can. Well, also. They have cars. Some of them can have yes. cars. Yeah, totally. That super changes dating. You can take your date and go somewhere. And, like, park in a dark place for a little bit. (laughs) 
classic. Yep. Um, though it is still, like, a little bit of a cautious era. I'd say, like, especially if you're, like, from a wealthier family. Yeah. So, like, often what, like, if a young woman wanted to go to a dance hall, they would send her with, like, an older married couple. Right, yeah. To, like, escort her. Um, but, yeah, it's the start of, yeah, it's the like, start a of new that. dating culture, basically. Yes. Um, one big social event that happens during this that we're going to talk about on the bonus episode. So you got to be a patron if you want that. Um, we're going to talk about the Winter Carnival. So this was a big event that happened um, only once, and then we never did it again. But it looked fun. It did. It, it looked really fun. The scariest toboggan slide I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. <laughs> Just shooting kids out into the sky at full velocity. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's like, there's social events going on. There's big ones. Yeah. There's a lot more dances too happening in like hotels and stuff. Yeah, totally. And a lot of like, also like workplace outings. You see a lot of like picnics, right? Yeah. So basically people are going out. People loved going out with their coworkers. <laughs> Couldn't get can't, enough of it. Can't relate. Um, <laughs> just kidding. If any of my coworkers are listening. <laughs> Alex loves you guys. She'll go out with you any time of day or night. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> just ask oh no um yeah so that's that's basically the 1920s so um lb foot he continues to photograph winnipeg um as well as like other places um where he travels to during the 1930s and most of the 1940s as well mm-hmm. he's got this crazy like 45 year long career yeah it's shocking how much of winnipeg he managed to document yes and like we've really just touched on like the the surface here we you and i went to the archives twice was it only and i think i went maybe an additional once as well yeah um because there's like two thousand photos in the archives there's so many and they're a lot of them are so interesting yeah there's lots of really cool like construction photos mm-hmm. and like downtown photos and family photos there's all kinds of fun coroner stuff. photos if that's your thing <laughs> don't send them to us we don't want to know about it no we don't um yeah but in 1932 there is a fire at the like james the like foot and james studio Mm -hmm. so after that he just works from his home on gertrude avenue um unfortunately in 1948 he's in a car accident and he no longer takes photos after that oh it's actually unclear to me exactly how he's injured like because he keeps doing other stuff but i guess he maybe can't climb up on top of buildings anymore the thrill is gone because he can't do ludicrous stunts yeah um and so his He's also got, he's got two sons, um, and they're kind of grown up by that point. Actually, here, this will be my last, uh, last photo for the episode. This is a picture of his son, Eric, when he was a baby. Oh, it's a picture of a, just a little baby boy in a very whimsical looking baby carriage. It's like the cutest little baby. It is. He's smiling, but also like this, it's curved like a Santa sleigh, isn't yeah. it? But it's like partially wicker and partially wood. It's a nice stroller. It is. It's very fancy. And yeah, he looks very comfortable. Yeah. Very sweet little kid. Um, but yeah, his kids are grown up at this point. Um, and like, neither of them has any interest in photography. One of them, I think, moves to Detroit to like work on cars. The other just kind of hangs out here, does other stuff. Um, and his wife also passes away in the 1940s, unfortunately, but he spends the final years of his life traveling throughout Canada and the U.S., I mean, that sounds perfect for him based on everything else he's ever done. Um, He says, people often ask me how I can afford to do so much traveling. I just tell them I may not have much money, but I've got $4 million worth of friends. (laughs) It's so cute. super cute. (laughs) Um, And a reporter asks him um, if he misses taking photos. He says, oh, there are times when I see something and I think I'd like to have that. But what's the difference? And... (laughs) The last thing I'll share about him is um, he also said that he appreciated that he didn't have to be the photographer for every vacation now. 
That's so, very sweet. Yeah. So that's LB Foot. It's a very sweet ending to the episode, considering the actual ending to the 20s is much worse. This is true. Because, <laughs> oh boy, does that stock market crash. Yes. So uh, we'll be talking about that uh, next time. Yeah. And the ways that, um, you know, people of certain political persuasions responded. <laughs> oh boy, Winnipeg in the 1930s is such an interesting such an interesting time. Yep. <laughs> so full of big opinions. Oh yeah. In riots. Yep. So yeah, that'll be that'll be next time. Yeah. Uh, tune in next time for Jacob Penner. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to uh, the Winnipeg Foundation's uh, Centennial Institute grant for their support. Um, the Manitoba Heritage Grant, uh, the Manitoba Historical Society, and the Winnipeg Free Press for supporting the project. It goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to our patrons for supporting us too. We really appreciate it. It helps us uh, buy books and go down to the archives and get pictures and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, we get to pay for parking at the archives. It's a real treat. <laughs> I don't get tickets. Hey, well, sometimes you get tickets. Yeah, but that was that was my fault. And you and you can pay for those too. Yeah, I can pay for my parking tickets. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, it goes a long way. Uh, we put out bonus episodes every month on stuff we like left out of episodes, mm-hmm. and then other like miscellaneous Winnipeg history things. Alex recently just listed off Winnipeg millionaires and yeah. what they did, <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, I've got a fun one about cats Ooh. coming up this month, so that'll be a fun one. So you can check that out at uh, patreon.com forward slash one great history. If you just want to see the pictures and look at our sources for the episode, that's on one great history or dot wordpress.com. I'll also be sharing them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are one great history on Facebook and Instagram, number one great history on Twitter. Uh, thanks for your support. We'll see you next time. I have to look something up now okay. because I have a story. Okay. <laughs> I might have a story if I can remember it. And I don't want to get it wrong because it would be really embarrassing. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> this is good content. I'll be Sign. editing this out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Me, like, frantically Googling on my phone because for some reason Google is not giving me their about section in oh, a helpful great. way. You know what's annoying at work? Our search engine is Bing. No. Yeah. Can you not change it? I have to go to Google manually every time. Oh my god. And when I Googled it on, when I searched it on Bing, it worked. <laughs> Maybe you should go to Bing.com. The superior search engine. God, this, apparently. This episode is brought to you by Bing. <laughs>